the doctrine of stare decisis only ever matters when you think the decision is wrong. If the decision is right, you don't need stare decisis to tell you to stand by the decision. The decision is right. So stare decisis bites only when it is telling you to stand by something that's wrong. Hello, and welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. My name is Eden Bernstein, and today I am joined by Professor William Bode, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Chicago Law School, and Professor Richard Ray, a professor of constitutional law at the University of California Los Angeles School of Law. On this episode, we're discussing precedent, when and whether it can be overturned. Thank you so much, Professor Bode, for joining us today to talk about something I know you've been grappling with a lot lately, the doctrine of stare decisis. Indeed. Thank you for having me. So let's start out with a few basic questions. First, what is precedent? I mean, precedent is the basic idea of using the decisions you made in the past as a guide to how you make them in the future. Uh, It doesn't have to be limited even to the context of courts and court cases. Although in law school, we talk about precedent. What we mean is, you know, the court says we decided it this way before. What should we do now? Is precedent the same thing as stare decisis? Uh, I guess a stare decisis is, in addition to being Latin, uh, I think a slightly more, the, the more specific idea of let the decision stand. So stare decisis says this precedent, you know, might be questioned, but we should, we should let the decision stand. So Professor Ray, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm going to start out with an easy question. Is the doctrine of stare decisis constitutional? Uh, So it's, of course, not an easy question. I I think it is constitutional. There is a lot of room for uh, argument about this. I think that in order to uh, challenge its constitutionality, I think the prevailing view, uh, the prevailing approach to that requires taking a pretty hard line uh, textualist position about what constitutional interpretation requires, because you have to be able to discount all the centuries of practice regarding precedent. And then on top of that, I think you have to take what I would regard as a relatively um, stringent or narrow view of what the text permits, because you have to rule out the possibility that Article 3 in particular uh, at least allows and maybe even requires some norm of precedent. If you don't mind for our listeners laying out the argument for why stare decisis would be unconstitutional, I think that would be helpful. Right. So I think the um, piece by... Uh, Gary Lawson is probably the the um, source of a lot of the doubts about precedent's constitutionality, and the idea would be that judges take an oath to the Constitution. The supreme law is this text, the constitutional text, and the Constitution does not expressly refer to precedent. The Constitution instead sets out a lot of principles of law, and so if a judge previously arrived at the wrong view of those textual principles of law, then a later judge who didn't take an oath to prior judges that took an oath to the Constitution, the later judge should give priority to the Constitution and ignore the prior decision of their predecessor. And the effect of that is to is to negate precedent. So again, it, it relies, I think, on a strong view of constitutional text. Strong, strong both in the sense of constitutional text being uh, the paramount maybe even exclusive value for judges, but also a strong view of the content of the text. Because again, the text for this argument to work has to itself preclude consideration of precedent, uh, despite textual provisions that seem to allow for it, like judicial power, the concept of a court, plus the the uh, gloss that may have been placed on the text by centuries of using precedent. 
Going back to you, Professor Bode, why are we so frequently hearing the terms precedent and stare decisis lately? Anytime the court's membership changes, I think one of the big questions is how will the court behave towards precedent? You know, as long as Justice Kennedy was in charge of all constitutional law in the country, precedent didn't really matter because Justice Kennedy would do the same things Justice Kennedy had done in the past because Justice Kennedy agreed with Justice Kennedy. As soon as we have a justice who doesn't think that way, the big question becomes, well, is Chief Justice Roberts or Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Thomas or whoever going to do what Justice Kennedy did before or do what they would have us do now? So I think anytime that, that happens, there's a big talk about precedent. Uh, I think that would have happened probably just the same if if Hillary Clinton had become elected president and if she'd uh, fulfilled her campaign pledge to only appoint justices who believed Citizens United was wrong. We'd have a long talk about precedent and is it okay for a president to basically run on the concept of overturning a precedent. But either way, it's sort of the inflection point we're at. So let's just talk about the current members on the court. If you could give our listeners a quick breakdown of where exactly they are on the question of precedent. So, I mean, so this is one of the reasons I'm interested in it. I don't think we know for everybody. Uh, so uh, just to give a few examples. So Justice Kagan, uh, last term, in a number of cases, uh, made the complaint that the court was overturning precedent too easily uh, and has continued to make that claim uh, this term, including in even in cases where she seems relatively sympathetic to the underlying claim. Uh, so she seems to be sort of staking out a, a position that the court should not overturn precedent too much, um, that a certain amount of, of modesty is appropriate. Uh, at his confirmation hearing, Justice Kavanaugh talked a lot about precedent uh, and about the idea that precedent is maybe even required by the Constitution uh, and has started during oral arguments last term to sort of lay out what his theory might be. Uh, he hasn't yet sort of put that in writing in an opinion in any of the cases. I'm hoping that's because he's sort of being careful and trying to figure out what his, what his theory is, but I'm hoping we'll, we'll get one from him soon. Uh, but there are two justices last term who really started to kind of develop their own theories of precedent and I think are worth talking about. Uh, one of whom is Justice Clarence Thomas, who wrote a really fascinating opinion in a case called Gamble, uh, where he said that actually it's there's a duty to overrule precedent anytime that it's demonstrably erroneous. So anytime you can actually tell that it's wrong, it follows that you have a duty to overturn it. How can you tell when something is wrong? Well, so that's that's part of Justice Thomas's opinion, actually, as he says, look, some people think legal questions don't have right and wrong answers. They think everything has sort of arguments on both sides. And part of my view also is that as a judge, you know, we're committed to figuring out the right answer. And if you don't think there are right answers, you shouldn't be a judge. So I mean, I think it's just the process of legal reasoning. You, In his case, he, he'd say you look at the text, you look at the original meaning of the text, uh, and you see what it means. And the other justice who developed a more concrete view? So the other justice uh, that has been the most interesting is Justice Alito, uh, who hasn't quite you know, put his theory in so many words, but in a number of cases has expressed uh, a worry about what he calls halfway originalism. And one example of this is in the, the non-delegation case the court had last term in Gundy, where there were uh, a number of justices who wanted to, to uh, overturn a lot of precedent and be much more skeptical about delegations to the executive branch. And Justice Alito said, if there were five justices who felt that way, I would be one of them. I'm happy to overrule the precedent. But until there are, I don't want to engage in a kind of half measure of, of giving the benefit of this doctrine to some people and not others. And he said, in this case, you know, if, if we applied this doctrine, it would help a sex offender. 
and it would be freakish, I think was his word, to apply the doctrine only to help a sex offender and not to help other people. So he's sort of concerned about, about you know, whether we can adopt a rule across the board or whether we'll only be helping some people rather than others. So is it fair to say that Justice Alito's views on precedent take into consideration the effect of the decision, the result that would come out of it? I think so. Yeah, I think he's, I mean, I think he's partly engaged in game theory. So I think he's partly saying, you know, I'll, I'll do it if other people will do it, but I don't want to be the only one. And then I think he's partly saying uh, or thinking, you know, if we're only going to, if we're not going to do sort of the ideal thing, then I don't want to be in a world where we're leading to results that are bad. <laughs> uh, and so he's kind of, yeah, concerned about the actual outcomes of the cases. At the beginning, you expressed that Justice Kagan um, is very skeptical of overturning precedent, even when she would agree with the results. And I'm wondering, is that rare? Are there judges who frequently um, are willing to let the doctrine of stare decisis constrain their preferred decision? Yeah. So I, I don't think it's rare, although uh, it's a little hard to tell. Um, I mean, in a way, the doctrine of stare decisis only ever matters when you think the decision is wrong. If you think the decision is right, you don't need stare decisis to tell you to, to stand by the decision. The decision is right. So stare decisis bites only when it uh, is telling you to stand by something that's wrong. And now the, there is a kind of narrative out there that the current court is overturning precedents you know, at a breakneck pace, and they don't believe in precedent anymore. And from the data we have, it seems like that's not true. The sort of the Congressional Research Service keeps a list of precedents that the court has overturned, and it's not overturning more precedent than it used to. And I will say, when I look back, when I look at it, I actually worry the court may not be overturning enough precedent. Uh, there are lots of things that uh, may well be wrong, say as an original matter, that Justice Thomas has not said he wants to overturn. Um, you know, one that's near and dear to my heart is the doctrine of qualified immunity that protects officers when they act unconstitutionally, which the court just won't even hear about. Uh, so I think suspect there are a lot of things that the court just kind of leaves in place without really thinking about them, maybe too many. Professor Ray, do you think there's value in judges being constrained by the doctrine of stare decisis? So I think there's a lot of value in having judges uh, constrained. I think you wouldn't want rule by the judiciary to use a, a cliched expression that people sometimes bandy about. Uh, but then the, the issue for me first becomes, well, what is the source of the constraint? Precedent, as I think you, you mentioned, is often thought to be an important source of constraint. And then the next reaction people often have is, well, it's a failure because it doesn't actually constrain judges that much, if at all, especially in the Supreme Court. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that it's in the Supreme Court that we feel this constraint is the weakest because there's no one reviewing them. The less that precedent is determinate and mandatory, the more freedom it gives judges to implement, among other things, their own view of what the law actually should have been from the beginning. And if you look back at major instances of overruling, which are very frequent uh, in the Supreme Court, you know, there are hundreds of examples of the Supreme Court expressly overruling its prior cases to say nothing of all the times it's hollowed out or narrowed its prior cases. But many of the cases of the Supreme Court overruling precedent are, are canonical, cherished decisions. Uh, you know, Barnett with the flag salute or Brown and Plessy. And, and what's happening in these cases to a great extent is, well, they'll, they'll say, that certain conditions of stare decisis are met. But what seems to be driving a lot of those big decisions is a deeply held view of what is legally right. 
I'm wondering if either of you has come up with a more coherent way for judges to approach the question of whether to overturn a precedent. Professor Bode, let's start with you. Uh, I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, I guess, so, so here's the thought. So a lot of the way the court preserves precedent right now is by not even asking the question. Since the court has discretion over what cases to hear, uh, if they just refuse to hear whether or not a doctrine should be overruled, then it just never comes up. And they can put the question off as long as they want to, never have to even explain themselves. So I do think if we if we worry about this problem, one thing to do is to think about how the court takes cases. And maybe that means lower courts need to be a little more careful about creating circuit splits so that the court is encouraged to resolve issues. Maybe that means we could change the court's jurisdiction to say, you know, there's a certain number of cases they should have to resolve no matter what. But I think if we're, if we're thinking about the bigger picture, part of the problem is that the court itself decides what it wants to hear. So if it doesn't want to even think about something, it doesn't have to. Okay. So I see that one of the, the bigger problems here is just getting the case into the door. Um, let's say that it's gotten through the door and it's at the Supreme Court. If we could design a way um, for for every justice to look at the question of stare decisis, what would that look like in an optimal world? So I think the most important thing is to have a, a doctrine of stare decisis that isn't discretionary. So I think when the judges have discretion, when they can say, we just declined to overrule this precedent because we think we think we don't want to, uh, or this time we do want to. And that really undermines the rule of law. It actually, I think, undermines the the whole justification for judicial review in Marbury versus Madison, that judges have a duty to apply the law and it's not up to them. So it should be non-discretionary. There are competing theories of precedent. I don't have a... I don't yet have a strong view of which one is right. Uh, Caleb Nelson has a, a one of the best articles ever. Uh, I was going to say on this topic, but it's really one of the best articles ever uh, on precedent where he suggests something sort of like what Justice Thomas says, which is if the precedent is clearly erroneous, you're required to overturn it. And if it's not, you should obey it. So that would, I think, be a very good theory of precedent. Uh, Justice Thomas, just to return him for a second, has adopted half of that theory. So he said, if the precedent is clearly erroneous, you should overturn it. But if it's not clearly erroneous, he says, it's up to you. You have discretion. You can overrule it. You can choose not to overrule it. He gives us no information about when you will choose to follow it and when you choose to overrule it. And if that's a lot of cases, that's actually a lot of cases where Justice Thomas now has the the policy-driven decision about you know whether to choose precedent or whether to choose the Constitution. Uh, and I hope he'll change his mind about that. Professor Ray. In a number of cases that I've written about in some some papers, the court seems to pull back from overruling or issuing an otherwise disruptive opinion so that it can give notice that it's planning to do that. I call this the doctrine of one last chance. And once it's given notice of what it plans to do, then it feels much freer in a follow-on case to uh, to follow through, which issue the disruptive decision. Often that means overruling precedent. Part, part of the reason that this two-step process or multi-step process of eliminating precedent is attractive, even though it's not strictly constraining, it doesn't prevent the court from reaching the outcome it wants to reach, but it's still attractive in part because it slows down the process of legal change and gives affected parties notice, thereby mitigating the costs of legal change. And I think we just saw that recently with the Janus decision, which Yes, issued a disruptive First Amendment decision, but did so only after giving notice a number of times, actually. And among the advantages of that kind of gradual notice-based transition before a disruption is that the ultimate disruption was rendered smaller, as the court pointed out. 
Are you concerned about the fairness to litigants in that first case where the court puts people on notice? It seems as though if the court knows it's going to do something and it chooses not to do it, well, there's there's just something about that that feels unfair to the litigants in that first case. Well, I don't think it's too unfair because that litigant, by hypothesis, has you know, if we're talking about a case involving overruling, has precedent against them. Probably they're a litigant that is invested in some sense in bringing about a broader change. And the uh, so I don't think they've been treated unlawfully because I think precedent is part of the law. And uh, I think that in many contexts, the court trades off interests of small groups versus large groups in order to achieve respecting as much as it uh, can and not violating the recognized legal rights of individuals, but also trying to maximize, again, overall constitutional or legal outcomes across time, which is a complicated thing. And yes, does involve sometimes people losing, even if under different circumstances that claim could have prevailed. Do you think we need precedent more because there are so many different ways of interpreting the Constitution um, between the members of the court? So I'm not sure. So this is a popular theory uh, that we live in such a, a fractured world that precedent will sort of provide something the justices can come together on. So we can all agree on a precedent, even if some of us are originalists and some of us are living constitutionalists and some of us, I don't even know what we're doing. Uh, I'm sort of dubious, I guess, whether it can really accomplish that. Uh, it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of the court's claim in Planned Parenthood versus Casey that the country is so fractured with the question of abortion. And so the solution will be for the Supreme Court to call the contending sides of the controversy together and ask them to accept a common mandate in the Supreme Court. We know that didn't really work uh, because the differences were so strong that half the country is not willing to accept the Supreme Court just telling them what the answer is. So I sort of worry about the same thing with precedent, that that when uh, the justices have very different methods of, of figuring out what's right and wrong, that then they you know they can't coordinate on precedent very well because some precedents that seem you know just fine some of the justices seem outrageous to some of the other justices and you get a lot of the the disagreement and rhetoric you're getting now where some of the justices feel the need to overturn things and others are accusing them of you know upsetting everything professor ray uh, to the degree that it uh privileges decisions and outcomes and rules and forms of reasoning that happened before it can create a form of common ground that can be fodder for compromise and um, all sorts of ways of, of, of reaching at least some degree of consensus. On the other hand, though, you know, the, the fact that, that the Plessy court had a certain methodology and view of the Constitution that allowed racial segregation can't have that much weight with a court in the 21st century because the later court just has a fundamentally different view of of what the constitutional document is. It's a different content to their oaths, et cetera. How does Justice Thomas square stare decisis with originalism? Justice Thomas, uh, he does say on the one hand, when a case is demonstrably wrong, there's a duty to overrule it. But he does also say, he points to statements by Alexander Hamilton and others that uh, at the founding, saying that judges and people who interpret the Constitution will have a role in in liquidating the meaning of the Constitution. So I think he's recognizing that there is some kind of balance and struggling uh, to find it a little bit. Um, and I think that's, I just say, I think that's actually, that's exactly right. I think the, the dividing line between uh, there are cases where the Constitution clearly requires something and precedent can't get in the way. And then there are cases where the Constitution is unclear 
And precedent has a big role in spelling that out. The dividing line makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's what James Madison thought. It's what a lot of other founders thought. Uh, and it may be the way forward on a sort of originalist theory of precedent. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the liquidation theory of precedent? What exactly does that mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, so you asked why we have so many words for these things. And liquidation is yet another uh, funny word for this, uh, a word that uh, James Madison used the most. The basic idea, uh, liquidate, as in kind of liquidated damages in contract class, is to take a uh, something that's unclear or a range of something and then make it more concrete, ironically. Um, but the idea was sort of the Constitution has a big range of ambiguities. Again, some things that are the clear, hard guideposts or the outlines. But then within that, there's a range of ambiguities. And in that range, practice, uh, judicial decisions or non-judicial decisions should be able to kind of fill in the gaps. Um, and Madison wrote about this a lot, uh, and I've written about it in a recent article, saying that when there was a sort of course of deliberate practice, so several times where people thought about it, thought about the question, and thought this was the right answer, that then over time, that kind of fills in the gaps and becomes the right answer. Uh, and he thought, uh, this is now a little optimistic in retrospect, that by the time of his death, uh, you know, a few decades after the Constitution, that most of the hard stuff would be liquidated. Uh, so he was kind of putting off some of his writings with the hope that that the Constitution's meaning would be pretty well liquidated before he had to actually publish anything. That didn't happen, but I think the idea is is important and it does happen sometimes. Professor Ray, do you agree with Professor Both that the doctrine of stare decisis is most useful insofar as it helps to liquidate the ambiguous parts of the Constitution, or do you think it serves some other purpose as well? I'll just say one thing I'm, I'm thinking about now is whether the purely rhetorical effect of stare decisis is not mere rhetoric, but actually very consequential and beneficial rhetoric in the sense that uh, sometimes justices might, uh, in their heart of hearts or in part of their heart of hearts, want to follow precedent, but they feel some sort of pressure that maybe they don't even want to admit to themselves. Maybe it's it's pressure that they previously suggested the precedent was wrong. They don't want to seem inconsistent or, or wishy-washy. Or maybe it's pressure that their ideological allies or the president who appointed them thought the precedent was wrong. They don't want to alienate those people. And if that's the case, precedent rhetoric is not mere rhetoric, as people often say, with you know, with uh, maybe with a little bit of a sneer. It, it's important, beneficial rhetoric. Not not that it's consequential in every case. But perhaps in at least a some some number of very high salience cases for some number of justices, it, it kind of greases the wheels for those justices to be able to do what they really want to do, support precedent, and and not alienate allies, not pure and consistent, and so forth. And if that's the case, it's a way that precedent can affect outcomes even without being a norm of constraint. And that's something I'm considering in uh, a draft paper at the moment. One thing that we haven't spoken about yet is reliance interests as a factor to overturning precedent. Does it matter? I wrestle with this too. And, and uh, I was surprised not to see more of it uh, from, from Justice Thomas, just in any direction. If you go back to the founding, if you take a sort of originalist perspective on this, which I think is helpful, uh, you do see courts saying that reliance interests can be, can be one reason to preserve a precedent, even when it's clearly wrong the one exception to the rule that we overturn precedents that are clearly wrong. Now, the kinds of reliance interests they have in mind are like property and contract interests, which sort of makes sense in the nature of property. Like property itself derives from the common law. We have rules in property like adverse possession that say if I 
take your property for 20 years, then eventually it becomes mine. So in a way, there's precedent like built into the law of property. I'm not sure whether we should take that and extend it further or not. Um, I think it, it would, on the one hand, it makes sense if you think of it as something sort of analogous, like the constitutionality of paper money. Maybe it's not, I'm not sure it's wrong, but there are there are credible arguments that paper money is outside of Congress's powers. And if so, that would obviously upset a huge amount of stuff. Uh, and it has a sort of similar feel to the property contract examples. Like all of our commercial dealings would suddenly become unwound if there weren't dollars. Uh, so so maybe. But then I, I do worry that sort of sends you on this slippery slope down to sort of counting everybody's reliance interests. So now the court wrestles with these questions like, is there a reliance interest on the Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade? Is there a reliance interest on the Supreme Court's campaign finance decisions? And in a way, I mean, lots of decisions would make people upset if they were overruled. Is that all it takes to be a reliance interest? Or are we talking something more concrete? So I, I think there is something there, but I worry if we're not careful about defining it, it'll just sort of uh, make it impossible to talk coherently about precedent. What about other state laws and additional um, judicial decisions as reliance interests. I know that Justice Scalia was big on the idea of not overturning entire systems of law when states have relied upon decisions and have then created statutes and lower courts have relied on these decisions. Do you think those are valid forms of um, reliance interests? So here's an area I think where where a lot of the th instincts Justice Scalia had are correct or plausible, but I don't know that he always put them in the right intellectual box. So I do think under the liquidation idea, you could well say the 14th Amendment is vague in a lot of areas. The meaning of privileges and immunities and things like that needs to be fleshed out through practice. And tradition and state practice has helped us understand what those privileges and immunities or equal protection are. And that would get just a Scalia a lot of the way towards that instinct. I don't think it makes as much sense to put them in the precedent category and to be willing to say, you know, here are a bunch of things that are definitely unconstitutional, but we're going to let the states do them anyway. Uh, and I think the example of the country's own history of the Jim Crow is kind of a, a place to make that relatively clear. There, there were things that the constitution clearly required uh, that people knew the constitution required when it was enacted. And we just let the states, some of the states, get away with ignoring it for a while. And I think it would be a mistake to say, well, that creates precedent that then makes us unwilling to enforce the Constitution in the future. Professor Ray. So this is this is something I've been thinking about recently. I, I think that for me, there's, um, there's maybe different types of reliance that vary mainly based on whether they do or don't implicate underlying merits. Contract and property cases involve the strongest forms of reliance, and that goes back centuries in the common law. That if you have a contract decision or a property decision, people rely on that. You don't want to disrupt that. And by contrast, they'll say constitutional decisions involve less important reliance. And recently, the court's been saying that in the Bill of Rights cases, even more specifically in First Amendment cases, reliance is really less important. Why, why would that be? Well, one possible reason for that is when you get closer to constitutional rights and even closer to individual rights, the kind of reliance that results from that is in a way tainted, perhaps, by the judge's view of the merits. So, for example, there was huge reliance on Plessy. You know, huge fractions of, of American society were organized and relied on the idea that you could have segregation by race. 
But I don't think that it makes sense to look at that reliance and say, well, that's, that's really great reliance that we have to respect. No, th- th- that's, that's reliance on the types that's deeply disturbing because that kind of reliance is a form of infringing on constitutionally respected rights and interests. Uh, and I think that part of the reason that you don't see that kind of intuition in the property contract co- context is that you are less likely, not impossible, but less likely to have that kind of reaction in that in that um, more private law context. Another example I'll give that came up in, um, in a recent oral argument is the um, government was arguing that it had obtained a lot of convictions based on a certain view of defendants' constitutional rights. And Justice Gorsuch said, well, but you wouldn't really say that the government has a reliance interest in incarcerating people who have been incarcerated precisely by virtue of having their constitutional rights violated. That's not the kind of reliance we want, is it? The idea of someone being incarcerated over time by virtue of a constitutional violation that they experienced is problematic. It, it, it necessarily shades your view of the reliance interest to see that the reliance interest it kind of is a constitutional violation in itself. Thank you both so much for being here with us to talk about Star Decisis. This has been Briefing, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UShyLRev. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts,